This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. Hey, this is Jody Stemmler. And I'm Steve Belinda, and welcome back to Talkin' Mule Deer. Today we have one of our very own uh, best employees, as we like to call her, they're Jessie all best Shallow. employees, yeah. but Jesse is definitely a high point. Yeah, so Jesse is our, our state action plan coordinator for migrations and winter range uh, for Secretary Order 3362 in a shared biologist position with MDF and Idaho Fish and Game. Welcome, Jesse. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's quite the introduction. Jesse, I'm super excited to have you on because you were one of the articles that we had in our first issue of the newly redesigned MDF magazine. We got a little bit of a glimpse of what you're doing out there in Idaho, but I'm definitely interested in digging in a little bit more into some of the work that you're doing for migration quarters, for mule deer, uh, and, and some of the other cooperative projects that you have going on. Tell us a little bit about yourself first so that we can get a handle on who you are. Okay, sure. I'm from Idaho, so born and raised in potato country in southeast Idaho, and I've been working on the farm, working with the land basically my whole life, but it goes back uh, at least four or five generations, and with that, all my family hunts as well, so getting this position basically brings together both of those aspects of being rooted in the landscape and also really enjoying getting out and hunting these species and now I get to make the habitat better for them. It's really now, now Jesse, you've heard me say this many times, but Jody, we consider Jesse homegrown. <laughs> um, we we actually at the Mule Deer Foundation helped get support her through her graduate studies. So Jesse, tell us tell us how you caught the passion for mule deer and and give us a little history of the MDF support that you got for your graduate studies and the work you've been doing with mule deer up until your day to hire with mule deer foundation. Yeah, that sounds great. So 10, 16 years ago, I moved to salmon, Idaho, which is some of the best backcountry hunting and really all around Idaho experience. My husband has hunted there several seasons and, and talks about how intensive a hunt it is, but what great country is. It really is. And that's where the bug started. So I've been working outside my whole life. And when I got to Salmon, Idaho, I started to learn about Idaho Department of Fish and Game. They have an office here, and I was working as a river guide. One of my friends that's a river guide also worked for Fish and Game, and he told me, I know you're not doing something this winter because I river guided in the summer. Why don't you come out and help volunteer to do some mule deer work? So first day with Fish and Game, I got to tackle mule deer which had been my dream and I didn't realize it until that moment. And that led to a job with Fish and Game about two days later as one of the deer and elk research technicians working statewide, radio collaring deer and elk. I got to spend 10 years following the critters around, which obviously leads you to more questions and wanting to do more. And that meant grad school. And I wouldn't have gotten a start in grad school without Mule Deer Foundation. And it was the local chapters that really liked the project that I was interested in. And that was focusing on mule deer and what they need, their habitat needs, their diet selection, and really how that compares in Idaho. Where do we have good habitat? 
compared to some of the lower quality habitat? And how can we make more deer grow in these areas? And it was the Mule Deer Foundation that funded all of the field work for this project. And it was incredible. And it was hard for Fish and Game to resist taking on a grad project that was fully funded. So obviously they jumped on that. And that's where the partnership began. And now this is nine years later, I get to come back and give all of that back. And I feel incredibly fortunate to have gotten this position. That's really cool. So, so your degree or your, your study was primarily around habitat selection, habitat use, um, basically what it takes to keep healthy mule deer herds. Tell us a little bit about what you learned during that process. Sure. Yeah. So what we learned is Southeast Idaho, where you have aspen stands, you have some of the most incredible habitat. There's lush orbs that grow underneath aspen stands. From the selection, from this diet selection analysis, it's not aspen that they're eating. And a lot of people think that it's really the aspen stands that provide the forage. It's the fact that they let light in and that they grow those forbs underneath. And that's really what deer are selecting for. Also in this landscape, you've got bitterbrush and sagebrush. Bitterbrush, it turns out, is some of the highest quality brush out there. So it's high in protein, high in digestibility, both of those extremely important to mule deer. Then you compare that, which we'd say is some of the best habitat. Those are going to be deer that have really good body condition. They likely have high twinning rates. And then we go to central Idaho, where we have lower rainfall and it's really uh, a sagebrush landscape. We don't have the aspen stands. We don't have as many riparian areas. And what is it that deer really need to have in order to exist in those landscapes? And it turns out it's sagebrush is the winning plant. So sagebrush has basically the, uh, the minimum amount of protein and digestibility that a lactating female mule deer needs in order to support fawns. And it was incredible to look at their diet and see just how much sagebrush they are eating in those really important times, which is that uh, spring and summer time frame. That's interesting. I, I guess I don't think, I mean, I knew they ate on sagebrush, but I thought of it more as kind of a winter reserve type of a situation. And it sounds like it's during most of their productive year, that's, that's a primary diet need. Yeah, exactly. So this is really our year-round plant that mule deer need. Without sagebrush, you wouldn't have mule deer in central Idaho. So Jesse, bringing the nutrition back into play for folks that may not have a degree in wildlife biology, you can't have healthy offspring without good nutrition for the parent. And not just the does, but you've got to have that good nutrition for the bucks too, for them to build their their body condition and the things that a lot of us uh, like bucks for is the big headgear, the antlers that they grow. And so having good nutrition allows them to become the big bucks that we all are looking for during hunting season. And also allows the uh, the females to go into the, the the maternity period to have healthy fawns and you know twinning rates as you mentioned is a is a great indicator of, of healthy populations and good forage base um, is there a difference in what the animals need between summer and winter and you know where do where what did you find in your studies about sagebrush and some of the other 
different types of food sources out there that that animals really need. Yeah, there's there certainly would be a difference, especially for mule deer in summer and winter. Summer is really when they need to be putting on the fat, which lets them get through an Idaho winter. So we, really, we would consider it that they're coasting through a winter. They need to maintain as much body weight as they can, but it they're not going to be eating the same and they're not going to have that availability of highly digestible plants. So in the winter time, they really can't select for those forbs. They're obviously senesced, they're not available. In the summertime, they need to have as much of those high quality forbs available with good rainfall, good habitat conditions so that they can fatten up. And it's those, those fat fawns and those fat does are the ones that are going to survive if we get snow conditions through winter. Now, now Jesse, I'm gonna ask you a, very, uh, a question that's something we saw last year on our deer hunt in Wyoming, I know we talked to you about it in uh, last fall when my brother was out, who you met, my brother Chris. We we hunted a burn area that had, the deer were focusing on wild hollyhock. Is that normal? That's a forb. So I would say that probably is normal. Not, I didn't test the digestibility of hollyhock. I would have to say there's probably about 50 other forbs that we looked at. If deer are selecting for it, I wouldn't be surprised if it has a either a high protein content or is very easily digestible. And most forbs are digestible. And after a fire, they're going to be nutrients that are released in the soil. And those plants will have higher quality that deer need for both of the for nutrients and for that protein content. So, and just real quick, let me, let's remind people what forbs are. We're talking basically the herbaceous, the, the, the flowers and plants that are coming up in the undergrowth. Is that correct? Yeah, that is. Excellent. All right. So let's figure, I mean, let's plot the, the transition you made from the work. Before that we do that, Jody, we've got to take a break. Ah, yes. And uh, hear from some of the, the the fine folks that support the Mule Deer Foundation. So uh, we'll catch up with uh, back with Jesse Shallow after the break. Elk, sheep, big old muleys, not a problem for the 27 nozzler. We packed it with more downrange punch than the 300 Win Mag. We designed it to be flatter shooting than the 6.5 PRC. The 27 nozzler is everything you've heard all that you've asked for, and plenty more. So enough talking. Check out the numbers for yourself and see what makes the 27 Nosler such a beast at Nosler.com. Okay, Jesse, before the break, I was about to get us into trying to understand your journey from a biologist getting her graduate degree, supported by MDF, to where you are now as a shared biologist with MDF. And I know it kind of went through Idaho Fish and Game. So tell us a little bit about that path. Yeah, you bet. So I ended up getting my dream job in Salmon, Idaho, right after graduate school, being a wildlife biologist in Salmon, Idaho, working on mule deer, elk, and a lot of wildlife species. And really, this led me to want to get back to my roots and get a lot of habitat work done on the ground, which in my mind matters the most. And it could be growing up on a farm, growing up with ranch animals, but I knew that there's a way to get more animals on the landscape, but you've got to get to the landscape level. 
and there were quite a few partnerships that I've been working on in Salmon and even statewide on trying to understand how we can get some work done on a huge landscape level. And when this position opened up, it was the perfect opportunity to bring both groups together, Mule Deer Foundation, Idaho Fishing Game, and really focus efforts on habitat and on those species that I'm passionate about, along with other folks that listen to this podcast, and that's mule deer, elk, and pronghorn. So, Jody, I know you know this, and, and Jesse, uh, you know this because we've talked about it, but, but your position, the ability for MDF to hire you uh, and have the shared position with Idaho Fish and Game was because of a grant from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, and they basically created a program to implement actions associated with Secretary Order 3362. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, what your primary duties and, and tasks are and, you know, some of the things that have been a result in your first six months of your position being on board and what you're really looking forward to uh, for the next couple of years. Okay, yeah, I'd be happy to. Probably one of the main parts of this position is writing a state action plan like the other left the 11 Western states. And this is a way to focus our efforts and prioritize our efforts to get more work done for our three migratory big game species, deer, elk, and pronghorn. And these priority areas were set by multiple people across the state. And this document really brings together all the partners, all the opportunities, and what we can actually accomplish in the near term future. We also identified research needs and we're able to call her many more deer, elk, and pronghorn in places that we really didn't understand their migrations before. And I am fortunate enough to get to really be the coordinator of trying to connect some of these projects and funding and the people together so we aren't reinventing the wheel. We're taking those successes and making sure that we're sharing them with everybody involved. And it was really this position that made that possible to focus, to prioritize, and to have one person dedicated to these projects that isn't getting pulled in multiple other directions. The, the focus is there. There's incredible funding opportunities and engaged partners right now. I'm really excited to get to start to work on some of the projects. And I've been doing this, like you said, Steve, for the past six months now, and I've been fortunate enough to be part of some of the fence conversion projects in the Crooked Creek area, where uh, quite a few pronghorn, mule deer, and elk migrate through, and they used to have to spend substantial more time getting through in sections where they could not pass through. And Jesse, I'm just going to jump in right here and, and also give props to the Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's Outdoor Fund, which uh, we received a grant for last year, that we were able to apply funding in addition to the work you did on the coordination for actual implementation of part of that project. And I know that uh, Bass Pro Shop and Cabela's um, is looking to do even more of that, but we were we were very excited and, and fortunate to get that grant for that specific action. Yeah, and it's great to mention them because the funding they provide goes a lot farther than people realize because it's that funding that we will be using for our non-federal match 
to be able to apply for additional grant funds. So anything brought in by these groups and by the Mule Deer Foundation has an opportunity to be matched and then doubled the amount of work that we can get done on the ground. I think these partnerships, you know, what we've we've talked about now, the, the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation grant funding that started this whole opportunity to implement the state action plan uh, and the Bass Pro Shops Cabela's Outdoor Fund uh, grant funding. I think it's a great uh, opportunity for us to shine the light on how the Mule Deer Foundation has been able to start leveraging more grant funded uh projects in in a variety of states and and you're just kind of the living example of how these public private partnerships um the the collaborative work that goes between the the people that are doing the implementation and then also the people who are bringing funds to the table or in kind efforts so you know just the hands-on getting your 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 boots on the ground to help out those all add on to each other and lay the bricks that allow for a big project of this nature to go. How many miles um, were, were of wildlife friendly, you know, of old fencing was removed and wildlife friendly fencing was put in as a part of this? 23 miles last year. Was That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it really is. The project also, Jody, and I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but there were allotments that were changed from sheep to cows because of the bighorn sheep in the area. So this really was an effort across many, many, many conservation organizations and landowners and other participants to really look at an issue that was happening where we had migrating animals that were getting caught up. We had the disease transmission risk vector uh, and other things. And, you know, because we're able to work together, we're able to come together on you know, what none of us would have been able to do alone was the whole project. So we all chipped in and it becomes then a model for looking at similar types of issues like this in other areas. And I know, Jesse, uh, one of the ones you and I are excited about um, is the Lemhi Valley stuff. Why don't you give us a little bit of information on what's going to be going up in the Lemhi Valley this year? You know what? I'm going to interrupt us right now because I think we have to take another break for our supporters. But when we come back, Jesse, that'll give you a little bit of time to think about your answer. And uh, and we'll hear a little bit more about the additional projects that you've got going on. So thanks so much to our, the Mule Deer Foundation supporters who are, are coming on and, and helping us with the Talking Mule Deer podcast. If you're buying or selling a trophy hunting or fishing property in the western U.S., our friends at St. James Sporting Properties should be your go-to resource. St. James Sporting Properties is more than an elite group of professional ranch brokers. They're also passionate about chasing monster mule deer, highly successful big game hunters, and avid outdoorsmen. When you combine their passion and expertise in the outdoors with their industry-leading marketing program, you're guaranteed to have a first-class experience. For more information, go to the Supporting Partners page on muledeer.org or give St. James Sporting Properties a call today to buy or sell your dream sporting property. Okay, Jesse, sorry I had to cut you off the last time, but uh, but I wanted to bring us back to what we were talking about, which was the idea, well, you had been just talking about how um, we've been doing fencing, working with private landowners. Steve, you brought in um, some of these conversions of allotments. One of the things that has come out through Secretarial Order 3362 and these big game migration quarters, winter range projects, is that, and this is no surprise, but mule deer 
elk, pronghorn really are dependent on a very broad range of public, private land, um, cross-state boundaries and things like that. I understand you guys are starting to get underway with a new project, this Lemhi project that, that Steve mentioned, that really kind of takes on that very diverse public, private, and even multiple states. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I would be very happy to. So the Lemhi priority area is a new area brought in under the state action plan. And this area was brought in because of the amount of, I would say, NEPA cleared federal lands to be able to do projects and because of the amount of engaged partners and all the potential. And also Idaho Fish and Game has been monitoring deer and elk in this area for at least 20 years. And in the last five years, extensive collar data. Okay, I want to just actually step back even a hair farther just about the state action plan because I wanted to bring this up the last time and, and we didn't. So, again, state action plans were part of the rollout of Secretarial Order. Each of the 11 states that are included in it have to have these plans. And the idea was to designate three to five priority areas in the state. That's not the only herds that migrate. That's not the only areas that are in need. But these are the top ones. And it was the intended to be able to focus funding directly on the ground in these core areas. So that's what you mean by this new priority area in the updated plan, right? Yeah, that's right. So it's both very important herds. These are high numbers of deer, elk, and pronghorn and areas where we can also get work done. That was a big part of the state action plan, was identifying where you can get work done, what partnerships are there, what funding needs you have. And the Lemhi area had many engaged partners and ideas basically that needed funding or had funding and work was already getting done on the ground. And this action plan could really highlight where we can get more done if we focus on it. Very cool. So, uh, Steve, do we have you still on board? Tell us a little bit about the, the connection that, um, that we're doing and, and how we're expanding the work into this Lemhi region as well. Yeah, so we have focused, um, you know, every year we put out for lots of grants and lots of funding requests. And one of the things we look at is where can we be most effective with the money that we receive in partnerships, in uh, opportunities and really what on things that we know are going to be successful. So we have multiple requests out right now that we're hoping to hear on any time soon uh, that would give us the opportunity to provide project implementation money within the Lemhi Valley priority area, mostly for uh, addressing noxious weeds and annual invasive weeds and not to get rid of major infestations, but really to address the little bit that's there and set back the progression or invasion of these annual grasses into these sagebrush systems. And what that will do is it will make these habitats remain functional and intact and prevent the, uh, the fires that come along with, with annual invasives. And also we're able to throw in some fencing and, um, other opportunities, and, and we talked about uh, earlier on our, our first episode of this season about, you know, beginning a process of working with cross-boundary, meaning state boundaries or tribal boundaries, deer herds. Those, those animals that are crossing one or two state boundaries that get right up to the border and get taken care of, and when they step across that boundary, it becomes the jurisdiction of the state next door. And so what we're trying to do is make sure that there's seamless management 
and, and seamless participation with the partners on these herds. And this is a good example because these deer that are that are wintering in the Lemhi Valley are actually going up over the pass and going in parts of them are into Montana. And so this is a perfect example of where we're at the Mule Deer Foundation beginning to focus our efforts on things that are, are not getting the full attention that they need right now because we have limited resources, there's jurisdictional boundaries, there's all sorts of other things. So this is this is a really a mishmash of the opportunity to work across agency boundaries, state boundaries, and with multiple partners. And this project is huge. It's, it's like 22,000 acres. We're going to be able to contribute just a little part of that, but all the other partners are contributing a little or, or more part of that. So together we're going to get really on this. And, and mule deer and the other species, uh, including sage grouse, elk, and pronghorn, are really going to benefit. So, Jesse, we've heard a little bit about your habitat projects, but one of the other aspects that you're involved in and that's recommended as part of the Idaho State Action Plan is funnel fencing and overpass underpasses, uh, you know, big game and other wildlife that are getting hung up across uh, some of these highways that are getting increasing traffic. Tell me a little bit about some of those projects that you've had going on and, and ways that MDF and other partners have gotten engaged. I know this was included, a, a, an overview of one of these projects was included in the most recent magazine, but I know there's others that you're working on as well. Yeah, you bet. There's actually four across the state in Idaho right now that are either partially complete, completed or in the design process. So we've got in northern Idaho the Copeland Funnel Fence area, and they're really looking at some additional funding opportunities to make that area even better for wildlife crossing. And then in outside of the Boise area is the Cervidae Peak. This will be the first wildlife overpass built in Idaho and scheduled to start construction hopefully 2022. And then down in southern Idaho is the Rocky Point. And this one really has been in the works, I would say, the past 25 years. There's been an incredible need. There's uh, six to 8,000 deer that will migrate through one funnel point at Rocky Point every year, back and forth across the highway and very high numbers of roadkill along that three mile section. And this will be a place for either an overpass or three underpasses for the price of an overpass. And then up here in the Lemhi Priority area is our project that was actually completed this October. And it started as just a bridge project. So old bridges, about 60 years old, needed to be replaced on Highway 28 along the Lemhi. And from this, the group, which was Idaho Transportation Department and Idaho Fish and Game, really wanted to um, take this bridge project and make it even better and look at what wildlife need to get underneath bridges. And they were able to raise the bridges up, make them wide enough. And before this project, they had no animals that were going underneath the bridges. And now already, just in the first few months, they've seen moose deer, elk, bull elk, nice bucks walking underneath. And in addition to that, they built three miles of funnel fence along one of the stretches of road that they'd already identified as a high strike area. And so far, we're looking at about six months now, there has not been any roadkill, at least within inside that funnel fence section. 
and it's a project that I'll get to continue to work on, uh, hopefully for the next few years, and we'll just make a lot of these projects. It's Mule Deer Foundation is involved in many of them to either for funding support or the technical assistance, trying to bring more partners to the table and that grant opportunity, which is huge in these areas. You know, it is remarkable. We we have a couple of, uh, of, of big overpasses, underpass networks in, in some of our bigger uh, more more popular traveled roadways, uh, and and it's it's amazing to see how big of a reduction there is in uh, mortality, wildlife mortality on the roads, just went just by one of these going in, and you added along an entire corridor where animals are moving regularly, and it's a really dramatic impact, positively. So maybe we'll get an answer now. Why did the mule deer cross the road? <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't to get hit. Yeah. So so Jess. Um, Tell us a little bit about how these areas are identified. I know you work with, uh, uh, forgive me if I don't get this right, but it's the Idaho Roadkill Database, and I know you do some routes. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, but you know what? I'm going to be that person again. we got to take another break to hear from our supporters because obviously they make Talking Mule Deer possible. Having the means to protect yourself, your family, and your property is more important than ever. And with Henry Repeating Arms, you can put those same means to work by putting food on your table. Henry now offers a wide variety of rifles and shotguns built to protect and provide. With Made in America reliability, you can trust. Henry Repeating Arms invites you to order a free catalog and decals by visiting them online at henryusa.com. Henry Repeating Arms. Made in America or not made at all. Give us a little bit of background about, you know, the... the research that goes in, how they become a priority, and, 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 and the partnerships and the collaboration that needs to go on to make it possible. Yeah, like I had mentioned with a, even the Rocky Point, when I say this has been in the works for 25 years, a lot of these areas are known migration routes or areas that might have high incidences of roadkill, but there's so many other pieces that have to come together to make a project possible. Obviously, funding in the, the millions of dollars for some of these projects. And it's also identifying whether they will pay for themselves, which is a huge component of it. So when you look at the cost involved in an animal getting hit on the road for mule deer, you're looking at about an $8,000 cost, either to the, the damage to vehicle uh, and other expenses involved. And if you're going to put in a wildlife project, it needs to be more valuable than um, that cost. Yeah. So getting to the, the Rocky Point and how places like this get funding, it's looking at getting a better value in the long term, the life of the project. And a lot of these funnel fence areas and underpasses are going to last 10, 20 years plus. And it, it, protecting people's lives, animals' lives, and vehicles, and the value is basically pays for itself in what you put in for infrastructure compared to the cost of animals getting hit on the highway. A mule deer, on average, will cost the public $8,000, and elk and moose much higher from there. And in addition to that, you have to have lands that you can build an underpass or an overpass in conservation easements that will provide that perpetual access to wildlife either going under or over is vital for these projects. 
So we have partners that are both federal and state lands, but also private landowners that are coming to the table to partner on these projects, and they're incredibly important. Yeah, so I mean, one of the things, Jody, that we have to understand is we're trying to retrofit a solution to a problem that was created by putting roads and highways in across animals habitats where you know they've been they've been using those routes and, and crossing those habitats for a long time and so uh, we oftentimes didn't think about that consequence and you know the other thing we have to be concerned about is other users there are places where snowmobiles and off-road vehicles and and visual issues and everything else. So these things are not easy. It's just not driving up and down the road where you see all the, the carcasses on the road or where all the red spots are at. You know, this takes a lot of years of planning. Um, the coordination with the Department of Transportations in each state and at the federal level has been one of those things, uh, let's just say a learning experience for us biologists and our, and our agencies because we don't speak the same language. We have different missions. And we look at the world completely different. But because of efforts like Idaho has and other states that we've talked about in previous podcasts where, where are there you know, wildlife vehicle summits, wildlife vehicle collision summits, and you know, things looking at solutions to issues. And based on, you know, I've always said, you know, it doesn't, one human life is, is worth more than, you know, all of the wildlife out there that could get hit. So we have to look at it from a, from a safety standpoint too. So it's, um, these things are really interesting. And one of the projects that Jesse is, is asked me to look for funding on is to, you know, fix some of the issues. We think we get it right the first time, but you know, you do your best job, but because of, uh, settling or because of bad design or things you didn't think of, you know, things can always be improved. So things like jump out fence, uh, jump out ramps, uh, walk through fences so the public can still use these areas, things that we're looking to go get some funding for and or convince our members that we ought to be working with that. And so we can come in and continually improve these infrastructure projects that are put in to make sure that animals can safely cross roadways. It's all really fascinating stuff. And, and you know, we obviously, the, the implications for wildlife vehicle collisions um, and the impacts to potentially human life and, uh, and insurance claims as well. But every animal that's taken out of the, you know, out of the gene pool is, is dollars lost for Idaho Fish and Game as well. So, I mean, if you're losing bucks, um, you know, that's a potential trophy down the line. And those that loss of life adds up as well. So it's pretty neat to see these coming together. It's not just Idaho, but I know Idaho has been pretty successful in, in making some some really quality product, products and projects on uh, funnel fencing and wildlife crossing structures recently. Jesse, we're running out of time. So I wanted to get a little bit of a, a, an idea of what you see in the future. I mean, we've talked a little bit about some of the projects, but how is your summer shaping up? What do you see on the horizon for you and, and some of the projects Mule Deer Foundation is, is going to be doing? And, you know, COVID restrictions notwithstanding, are there going to be opportunities for some volunteers to get involved and help out? You bet. I think there will be opportunities for volunteers. The nice thing about what we're going to be doing is it's outside, so we can still get quite a bit of work done. And like Steve had mentioned, we'll be doing some of the noxious weed work, um, 
there's some funding already available for the Forest Service. Not so much volunteer opportunity there because that's done with a helicopter, and that's why it can cover so Ooh, much land. Ooh, tell us about that. Yeah. So the Forest Service was innovative about 2017. A few of the invasive species biologists really wanted to work in an area to set that, I would say, set the cheat grass line back. And the best place to get that work done is where the landscape is still mostly intact, where it hasn't converted completely to annual grasses. And the Limhi Priority Area is really the perfect place to get that work done. Is It's the leading edge of where cheatgrass has moved in, and you can move it back substantially. It's been 2,500 acres a year that the Salmon Chalice Forest has treated cheatgrass in the Lemhi Priority Area. And we're going to be looking at year five here and hoping to get some additional funding and we can really set that line back. And when they're doing this, the aerial cheatgrass work, they have a pretty large buffer around any other lands. They're really wanting to be courteous to the public and hunters out there as well. But what and that's this, for drift, right? Yes, that's for drift. Yeah. And so, they know, don't spray when there's wind. There's So the drift is extremely minimal. You're looking at 100 feet. Yeah, so, and, so Jody, I think what you might have been getting at is these are done with uh, helicopters with big booms on them. Yeah. And so it's similar to like a farmer spraying his field with the tractor boom sprayer, but the booms are on the helicopters. So they go up and they, they're able to fly the landscape at a certain distance above the vegetation and given all the math that they've had to apply for dispersal rates and droplet size and everything else, they can then uh, pretty accurately and precisely uh, apply chemical from the air and make it most effective. Where in a fixed wing, you got to fly, you know, straight lines because of, you know, the difference between a, a rotary vehicle and, and a fixed wing vehicle. But you know, it's pretty excited, and you know, you'll see these helicopters out there retrofitted with uh, these big sprayer booms on them. And and so, rather than spraying in potato fields or wheat fields, we're going to be doing that in sagebrush landscapes. And we're doing that more because if you can, you can do more area, but so you can bring your cost per acre down. And right. when we get a big area like this one, we can really bring our cost per acre down because we're doing big blocks at one time. Well, and this is, um, I mean, obviously cheatgrass is a huge issue in a lot of the Western states, and it's a, a fuel issue, right? So, because once a cheatgrass comes in and a cheatgrass invasion might come in post-fire, but then it increases the uh, the frequency of, of devastating wildfires as well. Is this part of, I think I read recently about a, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has a Joint Chiefs Landscape Restoration Partnership and doing hazardous fuels reduction. Is this part of that project here? Because I know you guys got some funding in, in, in Idaho for that as well, didn't you? Yes, that's absolutely right. It is part of it, and it is a fuels reduction project. And you're absolutely right that you can reduce the return interval of fire if you can take out what's um, likely going to ignite it, spread it fast. So we, we know that with cheatgrass. If you have cheatgrass there, your fire intervals are going to go up your ability to bring that landscape back to something that deer, elk, and pronghorn can thrive on gets less and less if the cheatgrass invades and a fire goes through. And in this area, they're really setting that line back. And 
they're using chemicals also that only attack cheatgrass, so they're very selective. They're not affecting the native forbs, the native vegetation. And they're able to treat cheatgrass in fall when it has a green up, but the other plants have basically senesced and have put their forage resources back into their roots. And it's really effective. We, in the first year that they did it, they saw about an 80% to 90% reduction of cheatgrass in that 2,000 acres that were treated. That's really impressive. And, you know, and again, just as a note, um, you know, prescribed fire can be good. Uh, fire, you know, we talk about this, that that you were talking about earlier in this podcast, that in an area that had had a fire, um, new forbs growing up, that's that, that can be a great thing. But when it is uncontrolled or when it comes back with a higher degree of, uh, the, you know, higher temperatures, more frequency as happens with cheatgrass invasion, that's when it becomes really problematic uh, for, for wildlife and the native habitats uh, in the area. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's where resiliency of the landscape comes in. And if you can reduce that amount of cheatgrass and a fire comes through, your landscape is still going to be mostly intact because you won't have that seed source that moves in before the other native vegetation responds back from the fire. And you can really see a huge difference in areas that burn if there was a limited amount of cheatgrass. Yeah, bringing it back to Jody, the... Well, we started this conversation with Jody's uh, master's work is sage grouse. Jesse's master's work. Yeah, Jesse, <laughs> sorry. But, um, too many J's. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, let's not forget sagebrush is extremely important uh, plant species for mule deer. Cheatgrass isn't. Um, cheatgrass really doesn't have much forage value for wildlife or for domestic use. So eliminating it or keeping it at a minimum is going to allow other plants to flourish, is going to provide that nutrition, provide that cover for other wildlife, provide that intact native landscape that we need for for landscapes to be resilient and durable. Um, you know, and getting back to, uh, and I know we got to start wrapping things up here, but I've seen Jesse's work plan, Jody, and it's ambitious. And it's, and it's um, I, I actually cautioned her at trying to not overextend herself and trying to get everything done because, you know, we can't be stressing ourselves out. We have to have that work family balance, but I can tell you it's, it's extremely exciting to see what we've got going on in Idaho. We're going to continue planting sagebrush and bitterbrush shrubs in Southern Idaho. And what I'm most excited about is to see these radio collar data animals bringing information back to us so that Jesse then can go out and find new areas to be applying work where MDF can be more effective. Yeah, it's good stuff. And and you are right, Steve, we are going to have to wind down here. So thank you so much, Jesse, for your time. Do you have any other last thoughts or ideas or things that you want to mention before we sign off? You bet I do. Steve made a good point about my work plan and the ambition. (laughs) Plug in for volunteers. We're going to have some great opportunities and projects for volunteers to work on. We do have funding already for some additional fence removal. We're looking at up to 20 miles of fence that we can convert from impermeable woven wire to three or four strand wildlife friendly fence. That'll be both in uh, the Camas Prairie and the Lemhi Priority Area. And then as Steve mentioned, the sagebrush planting and looking for folks that want to be involved in these projects and we certainly rely on our volunteers and they also are a great opportunity to get additional grant funding we use their time 
it counts as a value and it works as match and we basically double the amount of work done on the ground if we can get folks out there. That's great to hear because I know, obviously, that's one of the huge, huge things Mule Deer Foundation can bring to the table is our very active and very involved chapters and individuals who are just passionate about mule deer and and sagebrush conservation. And and to know that they can get involved and and get their boots dirty and, and spend some time out in the field is great. Um, we'll let them know about that through probably through magazine, but since that's only coming out quarterly now, there will be opportunities on the website, um, Facebook posts, things like that. Or is that how they can find out about these work projects? Yeah, and reaching out to their uh, regional director and the other folks involved in the local Mulder Foundation groups. They're already engaged in a lot of these projects as far as providing funding and if they have some eager volunteers can send them that way outstanding and you can always just pick up the phone and call headquarters um they'll 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 send you in the right direction if you want to help support donate become a member um reach out to us uh, we're always here you know you can reach out through, to us through the podcast it's a uh, podcast at org. you know one of the things i'm excited about the most this summer jody is having jesse take us on her raft down on the salmon <laughs> river uh, and shows those old river rafting skills and maybe you know, wetting a line for some uh for some fish so that's, that's outstanding right. well jesse it's great to have a chance to visit with you a little bit more we've talked a couple of times but this is definitely the the longest conversation i've had and hearing because you're so busy <laughs> we haven't had a chance to talk so i i am super impressed with the work that's going on in idaho i know you guys are definitely um raising the flag well for mule deer foundation thanks for your time and for coming on to talk a mule deer for now i'm jody stemler And I'm Steve Belinda, and thank you for talking Mule Deer. Thanks for talking Mule Deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org, and stay tuned for the next episode of Talking Mule Deer.